Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a fascinating book and we interview the author of that book. And this week I'm very happy to say we have Leonard Casuto on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, The Graduate School Mess, What Caused It and How We Can Fix It. I've read this book, and I can tell you it is really very interesting. For any of you who have been to graduate school, and I imagine a lot of you who listen to this podcast have, this is kind of a must-read. Things are broken, and Len suggests ways we can fix them. So, Len, thanks for writing the book. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, oh, I'm, I was glad to do it. It's, uh, it seems like the least I can do, considering the, uh, the shape that graduate school and graduate students are placed in. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, I guess uh, I'm an American studies guy. I, uh, I started studying American literature in graduate school myself, and uh, I uh, got lucky and fell into the gravy. I got a professor's job, and I've been following my nose ever since, and it's, uh, it's led me uh, all around, from American literature into uh, uh, more recently academic journalism, and uh, now uh, academia as a kind of field of study. Could you tell us why you wrote the graduate school mess? Well, it it's it was an accumulating thing. For when I started writing for general audiences, the first one of the first general audiences that I wanted to write for was the general audience in my own profession. That is not simply the specialists in my own field, but the people who did, who did my work. And the first, the first journalistic, uh, first piece of journalism I ever published, in fact, was about the situation of graduate students. So you could say that I come full circle, except that there's a way that when you're, when you're a scholar, most of the work you do that's worthwhile is in some sense, a refraction of your own life and experience. And I know that I can trace that, uh, in, into every book that I've written, uh, the uh, the sense of where where it sprang from my personal personal commitments. This one is the most obvious one because the uh, the situation of graduate students. It was bad when I was in graduate school in the eighties. The job market that I was on that that, that I entered was pretty dire by the, the standards of that time, and it's gotten only worse. And the education that graduate students are are uh, are given in graduate school. Has become more and more, it's become more and more obvious to me that it's that it ill suits them for the job markets that they're going to find themselves in, and so there was a more urgency to write this book than some of the others that I've written because it's uh, it's affecting real people what's going on now, and uh, and I, I had a chance to um, to pitch in and try to change the conversation about what happens to those real people. 
that was something I wanted to do. Great. Could you tell us a little bit more about the nature of the problem that you address in the graduate school mess? Well, there's a, there's an, a, what might be called an ethical crisis that bit by bit over a long period of time with the acquiescence of everyone involved, the, the, uh, the system of graduate education has become incongruent with the outcomes that graduate students have uh, or the ones that they choose from. And that, uh, that incongruence, coupled with the increasing length of graduate school, which uh, some, some figures put it about nine years in the humanities fields after the BA, and uh, it's not much lower than that in the sciences, and the social sciences are about comparable to the humanities. The, the time to degree, coupled with the incongruency with uh, what, what it is that people are going to be doing afterwards, means that, we're, that people are spending the better part of a decade in pursuit of goals that they have a very small chance of getting and which they are taught to want above all things. And that is a problem if you care about young people's lives, which is what teachers are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so if we are teaching people to want things that they're not going to get or they're going to have a poor chance of getting and to be unhappy when they don't get them, then we're teaching them to be unhappy, and that's that's immoral, and that seems to me to be quite a problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, restated, I think there is a profession, and it's profession X, and that we'll call that graduate school at large, and they're presenting people or they're preparing people for careers in that profession, uh, but the jobs that they um, I don't know if they promise them, but they are being prepared for do not exist, or at least in very large numbers. Is that right? That's, that's absolutely fair. That gra- people go to graduate school, not surprisingly, to, with the idea that they want to become professors themselves. And that's perfectly, that, that's perfectly reasonable. About 80% of them have been inspired by teachers who they have, according to the, re- to the results of surveys that, that have been done. So, so the, the initial state, the, your, your initial state of affairs is that you have people who are entering a workplace, which is graduate school, with the idea that they're going to be prepared for the uh, workplace that connects to it, that is academia. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's fine so far, except that uh, the people who run academia and who teach the graduate students, that is us, I'm, I'm in this group too, uh, we're, we, we are running a workplace that, number one, does not convey early enough or emphatically enough the information that most, that the chance of getting those professorships is well, shall we say? I don't want to say slim, but it is. It's it's uh, it's it's open to chance. The chances of getting a professorship that looks like the one that you um, that your graduate school professors have is slim. And the uh, and if you uh, and so if you have a workplace that is not that is designed to prepare people only to do one thing, when in fact they are more likely to do other things as well then that workplace is badly designed. And if it's a badly designed workplace, what happens? Well, it's right now it is creating legions of unhappy and even embittered graduates. And it doesn't have to be that way because if the if we if we simply redesign the workplace so that number one, we tell the truth about what the prospects are 
And number two, we, we, uh, we, we change the way we teach in order to uh, aim at the diversity of outcomes that graduate students have rather than the one, then everybody involved is presumably better informed and you have a, um, a balance between what people are learning to do and what they're going to wind up doing. Some commentators have called what you're talking about the overproduction of PhDs. Is that a good characterization? Uh, it, it has been called that, although I, am, uh, I, I think that, that the term is a little bit misleading because it suggests that if we simply produced fewer PhDs, they would all become professors and everybody would be happy. <laughs> but that's, but there's, there's a way that that's a pro, that, 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 uh, that solution contains its own problem mm-hmm. for, for, to start with. The, in, the, in the history of American PhD education, PhDs have actually gone on to do plenty of things besides be professors. There was only one generation where they almost all became professors, and it was the largest generation. It was the post, post-World War II generation when academia grew like crazy because you had uh, enormous, new, enormous new populations of students, both uh, former soldiers who were being enabled to attend college by the GI Bill, and then baby boomers who came of age. So you had many, uh, a much bigger pool of college-age people, and the university, uh, academia itself, colleges and universities, were growing like crazy because the government was pumping money into them in order to um, uh, create academia as the research and development lab for the entire country. So college was becoming more accessible more, uh, to, to more and more people. And college and and uh, and colleges and universities were growing like crazy. So there was a demand for professors that was unprecedented, and everybody who went to graduate school could become a professor for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that was also the biggest generation in the history of academia. So it wiped out all previous memory of an of academic of um, an academia that uh, prepared people to do all kinds of things, including professed literature. Now, if we went back, to, if, if we reconfigured academia now to get to a point where we only admitted enough graduate students to replace retiring professors, assuming, of course, that professors who retired were replaced by other full-time professors and not part-timers at, and uh, uh, people who are, on, who are contingent laborers, but that's, that's, a, that's its own issue. We can get to that later, or perhaps you can read, read other books that are, that are devoted to that. Uh, if we assume that, 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 that the goal of academia is simply to replace retiring professors, then academia is going to become really small. And if it becomes really small, then it's going to become really elite. And if it becomes really elite, then the old, established, venerable graduate programs will become the ones who supply everybody. And that is a trap that academia was in once. It, when, it, when it was snobby, elitist, and out of touch. And part of the point of growing academia in the post-war generation was to democratize higher education and make it into something that, the, uh, that all of society could identify with. If we return to a time when, uh, re- return to a time that we escaped on purpose, where we become uh, the uh, uh, limited access and only the only the privileged can go to graduate school, the academically and economically privileged, because really your preparation is is a large key to your qualifications to getting it, for getting into graduate school. If we make graduate school only available to the people who are 
who have extraordinary levels of privilege and opportunity, then we are, I think, betraying the mission of American academia in order to create a, uh, an illusion, the idea that academia is only just for professors, because historically that's, not good. that's never been the case, except for one generation. True enough, but a critic might say that, while it's true, many of these people feel hard done by the fact that they can't get jobs, nobody forced them to go to graduate school. Could you respond to that? True that. <laughs> no, nobody, no, nobody forces them to go, but <laughs> when, uh, when somebody does uh, come into your classroom, then um, a teacher... Yeah, teaching teaching is a an egotistical profession. You you uh, you have a captive audience and you have a view of the world, and you want to impart that view of the world to people so that they can share it. And if and if you say, oh well, I'm open minded. I don't have a view of the world. I'm not uh, I'm not trying to impose that on my students. Then uh, my answer to that would be, well, open mindedness is a view of the world. And if you wonder about that, have a discussion with a fundamentalist. They, uh, you'll have some quite, quite profound differences on the value of open-mindedness, which is not to say that, uh, that fundamentalism is, per, is, uh, is wrong on its merits. It's rather that it's a philosophical discussion that open-mindedness is a view of the world. So, okay, so you've got, so you've got students who are in your classroom, and, they're, and, they are, and they're, they're, they're there to get your view of the world. If you never tell them that, uh, that their chances of becoming a professor are limited and that they need to be uh, augmented by an awareness of other possibilities, then you do your students wrong because if you're a good teacher and you believe that that academia is the only legitimate purpose of graduate school, your students will believe the same thing. Mm -hmm. And lots of students buy into that because role modeling is strong in graduate school because graduate classes are small. And so if professors do nothing, then their students will believe that if they're not a professor, they failed. And that's a terrible thing to impart to students. Even if they made a free choice to come, they don't choose what to learn. Professors do that for them. And we need to be better curators of our own curriculum and our own institutions so that we can uh, teach our students in a more self-aware way. So are you saying that the professors are practicing a kind of bait and switch with students who want to go to graduate school and who go to graduate school? The short answer to that is yes. But, uh, <laughs> but, profet- but like professors, are, the, yeah, professors are not always the ones who are luring the students into graduate school. So the, but once, once the students get there, yeah, the, if, if, a, if professors don't teach graduate students that academia is only one outcome, and if instead they teach graduate students that academia is not is the only outcome worth hoping for. Well, I can tell you that at the graduate school I attended, I don't believe anybody ever suggested there was any result, at least to be desired, other than entering the professoriate. I can say that things have changed a little bit since then because I know that when I have advised graduate students, I have told them that perhaps... There are other options. Uh, yes, uh, I certainly have as a graduate advisor. And, and in fact, the, the uh, awareness of my need to do that fed into the need to write this book. Mm-hmm. 
and it also fed into the need to write many columns for the grad for the Chronicle of Higher Education that grew into the need to write this book because really this is something we absolutely have to do, and it's uh, it's our it's our job it's uh, part of our jobs as teachers. That's part of what we need to teach. You you the uh, that's if you if if young people come into a career path and it's our job to help shape that career path, we have to do this because it's reality. The the, the numbers are incontrovertible, and the obvious the the examples of people who are who are unhappy, who are trying to be, trying repeatedly to become professors instead of trying to do something else and have a happy life. That evidence is everywhere. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think we all know cases uh, in which people have looked for jobs for a very long period of time, and during that search, they were not terribly happy. Academia creates a very particular kind of unhappiness, too, because the uh, we teach graduate students that this is a kind of paradise, and that to leave it would be uh, it would be like like falling out of Eden. But on the other hand, I know a lot of. I don't know if unhappy is the right word, but discontented, maybe? Professors. I mean, it's a good job, but it's not that good a job. It's a whole separate book where you have professors who are unhappy who yet cannot conceive of leaving academia themselves. You Present company accepted. Yeah. That, uh, but uh, there, are, there are a lot of – I know plenty of professors who are – uh, discontented in their lives, but are stuck in the assumption that this is the only life they could ever have. Because after all, this is this is the goal. The, and so, if they're looking for something to do, it has to be you yeah. know, leaving leaving academia. That's out of the question. Mm-hmm. And there, there was uh, there was an article in Inside Higher Ed recently about the proliferation of what what is called the quit quit lit, a new genre where it's on, only in academia is it news when professors decide that they're going to walk away. Well, I walked away, and I can say that I didn't write anything about it at all, nor do I think it's uh, noteworthy. In any event, so now that we've identified the problem, or at least certain aspects of it, let's talk about some proposed solutions. Uh, one of them that you often hear, and it's echoed in your book, is that graduate advisors should do more Advising, in other words, they should probably tell their graduate students a little bit more about their prospects, and it is hoped they should tell them that they might do something with their degrees other than simply become professors. So let's talk about that somehow. Somehow, graduate advisors have to tell their students this. I've had uh, I've, I've had graduate advisors say to me, "Okay, you're saying this. You have to you have to teach. You're, you're telling me I have to teach my graduate students that they're." that there's about other outcomes, but I never had another outcome. This is the only thing I ever did except for, except for three months flipping burgers when I was 16. Yeah. The only thing I've ever done is trained to become a scholar, become a scholar and now work as a scholar and a, te- and a teacher of graduate students and oh yeah, undergraduates too. The, uh, how, how can I learn to do this differently? And there, I have essentially two or three answers to this. And the first, the first answer is that the reason that people get to be professors is because they're really good at school. They're good. They're good learners. And so how can you tell me that you, you don't know how to do this and you can't learn it? It's not the hardest thing in the world to learn how to do. If you don't know how to do it, you had to teach graduate students that there are, that there are other worlds out there. You know, it's not neuroscience. So you're a good learner. So you can start learning that second. 
you already teach your intro undergraduate courses. You teach your, your, your intro to anthropology course. And you know what? All the, the, uh, you have all these, these, these undergraduate students in there. They're not all going to become anthropologists, and most of them don't even want to be. And yet, you can take your anthropology expertise, and you can put it into a form that, uh, that these undergraduate students, even the ones who aren't going to be anthropologists, can still take it and use it and, and, and draw on it perhaps in their lives. And so the idea of being able to take specialized knowledge and make it generally useful, we do that with undergraduates all the time. So the idea that we can't do it with graduate students is inconceivable, or at least it's, uh, it ought to be inconceivable, and yet somehow. The third point is, okay, well, the, uh, it is, there is a certain specialized expertise in teaching graduate students how to look for jobs that are not academic jobs. And I can readily understand that, that, that even a professor who learns some things about it is still not an expert necessarily. And a professor is not a career counselor of all trades. Well, and, but that's why we have career services offices. And one of the structural changes that I'm suggesting in the book is that graduate programs ought to forge partnerships with offices of career services on campus. And the offices of career services ought to be an early and frequent presence in the lives of graduate students in their graduate programs from the beginning so that graduate students know that their graduate, that their job search, their eventual job search is a unified part of what, of what it is they're going to be doing with, with unified with their education itself and not limited to academia. There are a couple of universities, which I mentioned in the book at uh, Michigan and Louisville, two big public universities, Michigan State, sorry, that, uh, that do this very well. And I describe their programs. And these, these programs are role models for everybody else. Every, we, we all ought to be doing this. And it's a way that, that if, we, if we forge these partnerships with career services offices, then professors who are ready to change their methods don't have to be the expert in everything. They can, they can turn to their partners and graduate students will benefit instead of feeling that if they're conducting a search for a non-academic job, that they are somehow working on the sly. And in some cases, more cases than not, than, than we'd like to admit, they'll feel like they're betraying their professors. And that, that's a terrible thing. The whipsawing graduate students that way, then when, they, when they're really only doing what they need to do with, to, for what's best in their own lives, that's something that has to change. So if I read you right, you imagine that the advisor's role will, to a certain extent, be expanded. The advisor will do more things. Yeah, I think we should attend to the word advisor. The, the job of, of an advisor, it's a very, it's, a, it's an important tie. It's the, uh, the, the tie between graduate student and advisor is it's, uh, the, it's the biggest and the deepest one in, uh, in, in graduate school. And, and Advisor, an advisor's job is to give advice, to help people to, to shape the course of their own lives. It's the job of an advisor is not simply to instruct in a, in a subspecialty. That's, we, we would call that a scholar. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if, advi- if an advisor is truly to be worthy of the name, then we ought to be thinking about the needs of the students before us. So you think that graduate advisors should both counsel students on becoming professors and talk to them about what they might do other than go into academia. I do. I think that, uh, that a graduate advisor is at bottom, a teacher. Mm-hmm. 
just as, a, an under, as an undergraduate advisor is. And part of what teachers have to teach young people is, well, whatever it is that they need to learn. A, stu- a, a student, a graduate or undergraduate alike, may be extremely self-directed and may have uh, a lot of creativity and initiative and may not need to be told any of this. Mm-hmm. But another graduate or undergraduate student may need a good deal of guidance mm-hmm. in order to become so that, the, so that she can become aware of the range of possibilities before her. And absolutely, it's the job of the advisor to give that guidance where it's needed. Mm-hmm. Graduate students are in the arts and sciences are uh, not always as worldly about their prospects as they need to be. I'm, I'm, I'm using my words carefully because I want to put this very kindly. It doesn't make them into bad people and it doesn't no, make them into bad all. students. Yeah. It just means that, that, that the, this is a student who has a certain set of things to learn that another student might not need to learn. Yeah. And, in the, and the job of teachers is to figure out what students need to learn and then to teach that to them or point them in the direction that they need to go in order to learn it if the teacher themselves if the teacher himself or herself doesn't have that information. Right. But here's a question. Uh, would it be more efficient to outsource this second job that is more efficient than teaching existing graduate advisors how to tell people how to find jobs in, I guess, what used to be called the real world? I'm, I'm suggesting the combination that, yeah. that is that, gra- that graduate advisors need to become more attentive and more aware, and some of them will become more knowledgeable than others. But if we create these uh, organic partnerships with offices of career services so that graduate career services can become part of each graduate program in each department, mm-hmm. then you're outsourcing at the same time, except you're doing the, it's not really outsourcing, it's insourcing. You're bringing it in. You're, you're bringing the, uh, the counselors into graduate mm-hmm. students' lives so that they don't feel that they are venturing far afield to get this advice and that it is, in fact, part of who they are as graduate students. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's, I keep framing this in terms of teaching because, really, I think that, uh, that graduate school needs to reform itself from within, that it's, it's, it would be a great thing if more professors' jobs opened up nationwide, and we should do what we can to try to, to, try to make that happen because... The more, more, the more people who go to college and graduate school, the more edu- higher education there is in the population. Mm-hmm. The, the argument that Thomas Jefferson came up with a while ago is that the, the more education in the population, the better the democracy. And certainly, I think that all professors believe some version of that. Yeah. But uh, so great. Let's. Say it would be great if there were more professors' jobs. But if there aren't, we have to we have to work on our workplace in order to make sure that it's that it's just and equitable for the people who are literally trusting their lives to their, to their professors. Mm-hmm. If, they, if, if, if they're giving us their trust, we need to take that trust seriously. We need to help prepare them to have happy and productive lives. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, and to me, that's a bottom line. That the, uh, if you talk to people about what, what should the university be for, one of the answers is always going to be, well, universities are about the production of knowledge. We have to create new, we have to do research and we have to create new knowledge. Well, yes, that's true. But in the United States, that research mission has never been separable from a teaching mission. And we need to, t- to attend to that teaching mission. Let's switch gears for just a second. And let me ask you this. We have something called the MA or the MS. Uh, why don't we simply say to those people who, let's say, don't have an expectation of becoming professors, why don't we say to them, 
well, you'll just get an MA or an MS, and then we will take the people who are, I don't know how to put this, uh, more promising, more serious. Again, I don't want to offend anyone, but well, we sent them on uh, into the PhD track. Idea. It's an idea that might even make sense in a certain context, except that it cuts across the grain of American academic history or the history of American academia. That from the very beginning of American, the, uh, of American graduate school, and American graduate school started in the, in the period following the Civil War, it really started to rev up in the 1880s and 18, the period from about 1880 to about 1910 is when the institutions that we recognize as familiar came into being, mm-hmm. by which I mean uh, the English colleges like Yale and Harvard transformed into research universities that we, that we recognize today, uh, state, state universities formed that, uh, that, ha- that were competing with them, such as the University of Michigan or Cal Berkeley. And also land-grant universities came into being as a result of the law that was signed by Lincoln in 1862 that authorized their creation. And land-grant universities had, or land-grant school, land-grant institutions had an explicitly practical purpose. But when they came into being, because they came into being at a time when research universities were being formed right and left, the land-grant institutions came into being as research universities. And so all of these this, this landscape coalesced during the period of about 1880 to 1910. And one of the tenets that it coalesced around was the idea that master's degrees are contemptible and that uh, nobody should want one and that we should give them out, but really only in order to support the study for the PhD. And so the, uh, the, ex- the explicitness with which the contempt for the MA is actually in the, in the archives is staggering. <laughs> and uh, the and so for us to turn around now and say, oh well, the master's degree—that's a really good degree. That is uh, something that we would have to really uh, kind of t- turn a dime, turn a battleship around on a dime mm-hmm. in order to do that. And it it may well be worth doing. The uh, results of the incoherence, by the way, of the master's degree, master of arts or master of sciences in the liberal arts is that you have the master's degree was essentially appropriated as a professional degree by, uh, by other fields like engineering. Mm-hmm. And so in fields like engineering, it means something. It has a, it has a very clear, it confers a, the, uh, a, it's a credential that, that, that confers an understanding of some specific skills and levels of expertise. Mm-hmm. Whereas in PhD programs, it's handed out like uh, as a consolation prize to somebody who's leaving, but nobody really pays much attention to it. So for us to develop the master's degree as a uh, as an alternative for people who want to leave PhD programs because they've decided that it's not for them, I'm all for that. But it will require a a certain renovation of a, of structures that we don't pay much attention to mm-hmm. and part and part of the and the, and those problems are coming a cropper now because uh mass, the enrollment in master's degree programs in the in in the arts and sciences right now is down can can I, can I can I go back to the uh, to the overproduction argument Absolutely. again and add, yeah. and add a, I want to add a postscript to this the uh, that I don't favor admitting armies of students. <laughs> that is I think the, I, I do think that, uh, that, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday, but uh, I, I do think that we should be running programs that can 
retail rather than wholesale PhDs, mm-hmm. and that, that 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 is the determining size. Mm-hmm. That if you can't educate each graduate student as a person who is going to make some choices based on what is before him or her uh, over the course of graduate school and shape a career shape career aspirations as a result of that, then you're too big. If you are if you can't if you can't treat each graduate student individually, that's too big. Yeah. And Grad, and, and enrollment in graduate programs, I think, is coming down in order to meet this need, although I don't hear it stated the way that I'd like to hear it. There's an article in, in, the, uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Ed this week, in fact, that talks about how, where it quotes a number of graduate directors who are saying, we wanted to be able to give full support, and this is the number of students who we could give full, uh, full financial support to. And that's great. Because graduate students should receive full financial support, mm-hmm. and that's a motivation that I that I entirely applaud. Mm-hmm. However, it's not the whole thing. That the re- the reason to to admit smaller cohorts is so that you can treat them in a way that uh, is more individually oriented than if they were um, than if you were as in the old days admitting large numbers. But, mm-hmm. but I think but but we do have to be careful, as I said of of um, returning to an elitist past. So back to the MA for a moment. And if I understand you correctly, you are arguing that it really uh, cannot be reinvigorated, uh, particularly because it was not very vigorous in the first place. So let me ask this. A critic might say, well, why don't we simply have two PhD tracks, one that heads toward academia and the other that heads toward, how should I put it, the world? Well, um, the... uh it, there's there's a way in which, of course, I'm, I'm advocating the idea that, that students should be prepared to make that choice. My, my suggestion in the book is that if you have two tracks, they will, if you follow the history of, uh, of academia, which has made, which, which has at different times, <coughs> excuse me, it has at different times experimented with different kinds of two-track systems. What happens is that the more scholarly of the two tracks becomes the first class, and the other, and the other one, the one that heads toward the world or, or, or more typically towards the classroom, will have a research degree and will have a teaching degree. Well, what happens then is that the research degree becomes the bauble treasured by the, uh, by, by the university fathers, and I use the term advisedly, uh, the, uh, and the teaching degree becomes the one that is uh, uh, held, held in low regard and is used to finance the research degree. That's how graduate school got started. So uh, I, I do think we should be promoting choice, but the way to do that, I think, is to admit people all through the same portal, using the same standards, and let them make their choices once they are in. That is, I think that, uh, that, tr- that true reform can only happen under the banner of your most valuable product. And that if you start creating products that you think are second class, consumers will think the same thing. And then you just right back where you started. So how could you raise the status of the track that heads toward the world or toward teaching? Well, by, par- partly by maintaining consistent admission standards. If you, if you admit people all according to the same criteria, and then you say to them, as a proposal that's being floated at Stanford suggests, the, uh, you you uh, you admit everybody according to the same criteria, and then at uh, and you expose them to different kinds of ideas. And at the end of two years, you sit down with each student and you say, "Okay, what do you think you want to you want to aim for? What's mm-hmm. uh, you you've been here for a while? What what sort of outcome do you envision for yourself?" 
And once you make that choice, we will then try to craft the remainder of the program so that you can be maximally prepared to chase the outcome that you have chosen. And that's, that's not so much a two-track system, that's a multi-track system. Yes, it is. Yes. And, the, and I, I think that our future lies in a multi-track system like that. Because once, once we start creating uh, the uh, concrete, you know, if we create an A, or an a and a B, then uh, A is going to float to the top of B, and then nobody's going to want B. Mm-hmm. And we we've been there before. We can't we can't we don't have the time to do that to to go there again. In fact, um, the uh, part of the problem with graduate school reform is that people try keep trying the same things because there isn't enough historical awareness of what has been tried and often failed to work. So let's talk about the world or teaching tract for a second. Uh, let's imagine that I'm an English lit student and I'm working on Milton or something like that. I'm writing my dissertation and I decide, well, uh, professorship just isn't for me. What would I do at that point? What would the department do for me? What kind of classes would I take? What sort of options would I have at the university? So, okay. So you say, okay, um, the, you go, you go to your advisor at the, so you've been there a couple of years and you, and you come to this realization and you, and you go to your advisor and you say, okay, I've thought about this, and I really don't think I want to be a professor. And so, so far, what you're already suggesting is something revolutionary, because the idea of going to your advisor <laughs> and saying that is something already that a lot of people, particularly in the sciences, will feel a huge reluctance to do, but not just in the sciences. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to think that their professor is going to say, oh, well, you are dead to me. <laughs> I, I, am, I am cutting you off. Here's a, here's a Here's a dime. Call home. <laughs> Tell them that uh, that you're coming home on the next bus because I want no more to do with you. There's a there's some version of that that is uh, that that graduate students fear, and one of the reasons they fear it is because some version of it actually does prevail in certain situations. It's not every situation, of course, but more than more, it's this that sort of thing happens often enough that it's not just urban legends, sadly enough. So. So that so so your scenario plays out this way. So you go to your advisor, and your advisor says, "Oh, okay, let's see what we can do." So already, then we've got a major reform in place because the the advisor is is agreeing to to see what what the what can the advisor and the student do together to think about how to plan what comes next. And the and the way that that conversation may go is, of course, the student may have no may have concrete notions. The uh, Student may want to become a um, a producer of a, of a radio show, uh, or just decide that a professorship is not for not for him. Uh, so there are some differences in that. the The first decision is: Do you want to stay through the PhD, or do you not? And that decision will be motivated in part by how much fun the student might be having in graduate school, and whether he or she wants to continue. Mm-hmm. Or it might have to do with the how can you shape the rest of the graduate school cur- curriculum so that it helps the student in becoming whatever it is that the student wants to become. And so if, the, if let's say, the, the, a member of a history department says, I want to be a public historian, then the, chance, the chances are the, the, the student could choose to stay in the history PhD program and complete the degree. But with, by taking courses, that might 
better qualify him or her to become a public historian. And the student might choose to get a master's in public history on the side as a supplemental degree. Or the same student might simply decide to leave graduate school and get that master's degree without finishing the doctorate. I had a graduate student who did that, in fact, and she's, she is working as a park ranger at a historical park right now. Mm-hmm. But she could as easily have chosen to complete the Ph.D. for her own reasons and also for curricular reasons. Mm-hmm. If she had, but she wasn't in a history program because I'm not, I, don't, I don't teach history. I teach English. So it made more sense for her not to finish an English Ph.D. But, um, the, uh, but the question of are you going to stay or are you going to go, and if you stay, how can we then individualize your curriculum to meet your goals? Does it make sense for you to stay? Or does it make sense for you to go and pursue further education somewhere else or stay while you are looking for a job in the workplace you've chosen? All of those alternatives have uh, have validity. One should not be seen as worse than another. And part of what we as the teachers have to do is to enforce that idea that one is not worse than another. Mm -hmm. If we make students believe that they let us down if they leave graduate school, then we are warping the choices, making it harder for them to make choices that they need to make for themselves. Would there be any limits on what the PhD candidates could take? You know, let's imagine a Russian history graduate student. I was a Russian history graduate student, and I decide that uh, the professoriate's not for me, but I really love computers, and I want to take a lot of computer science classes. Two, two, uh, two, two responses. First of all, let's say you're a history student and your interest is in Russian history, but you decide you want a job in government. As, there's an example I give in the book about that, where the uh, where I, ta- I talk to uh, just to a member of it of the history department who does a lot of public policy, and he says, "Look, realistically, you probably you you could you could study Russian history and then you could try to apply for a job in the State Department, in which case you would want to take some job some some courses in the public policy school. But if you want to maximize your chances for a government job," you probably want to transfer to American history mm-hmm. and um, see, because there, there are more jobs that could use that background. Mm-hmm. But let us, let us say instead that you, uh, that you want a job in computer science. There are some graduate schools, Brown, Brown among them, that actually allows you to, to get a master's degree in uh, a field that is related to your, your, um, your designed course of study. Now, uh, if you actually want to change fields entirely, Maybe it doesn't make sense for you to continue in your Russian history program and instead for you to just try to take some computer science courses. Mm-hmm. But if you, for, if, if you want to actually get a job at a think tank where there's, and do quantitative analysis of Russian culture, mm-hmm. then you can make a case to take those computer, computer science courses because it's going to make you more attractive. But um, uh, that's a very specialized niche, though, the, uh, doing crunching numbers about Russia for a think tank. And you'd want to actually perhaps explore the, pos- the prospects of that, that kind of job and maybe expand your, 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 uh, your search image so that you can um, look for something that look, look for more than just that one thing. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that the, uh, there's a lot of contingencies and it's the job of the advisor to help the student work with those contingencies. Uh, let me run this by you. When I was an undergraduate, uh, I had an advisor who was a Russian historian and he was a terrific guy, and still is, and I wanted to be like him. And he said, to be like me, you have to go to graduate school, and so I did. And then when I got to graduate school, I had another advisor, a set of advisors, and they were terrific people, and I wanted to be like them. And naturally, I said to myself, well, I'm going to be a professor. And 
I didn't really ever think about doing anything else. And I guess what I'm wondering is in order for the plan that you've laid out to work, it seems to me that you would have to have a cohort of people that had PhDs but weren't professors who were very successful. In other words, people that could serve as models for that group of graduate students who are going to get PhDs but are not going to go on and become professors. Could you talk a little bit about that? You've identified the, the great role modeling paradox that, advi- that, the, that graduate advisors, as role models, have the paradoxical job of trying to persuade their students to have other role models besides themselves. And so, and it's a job that if, if we as advisors don't do it, then it never gets done. And instead, our students imprint, as you did and as I did, <laughs> On, on our own advisors. And then we want to become mini-me's. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of advisors who are only too happy to have that be the case yeah. and who are going to promote that, promote that goal, not simply above all others, but, in the, but, but without even paying any attention to any of the others. So how, how, how can we create alternative role models? And they are out there. And it's the job of every department, every graduate program in every department, to bring those people to campus mm-hmm. and have them talk either as it's part of small panels of two or three or just one at a time. Yeah. And not, and, and these, these should be giveaway free food to get graduate students to come. That's the, the great lure. And also, this is the harder part. Faculty need to attend this yeah. because if we if we don't show by moving our own bodies into the presence of these alternative role models that this is worth doing, then graduate students will rightly perceive that we're just offering this up for them, but we don't really care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, but those but people who are who have PhDs who are doing satisfying and fulfilling and interesting work outside the academy, they are legion. <laughs> They're all yeah, over the place. They are. Yeah. And so it's just, a, and bringing them to campus is not, is not that much work because shockingly, an awful lot of them are interested in talking to, to, to versions of their former selves. Well, Len, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, and I very much appreciate it. Perhaps you could conclude the interview by telling us what you are working on now. Well, I'm, uh, I'm always following my nose, as I said, and where I'm thinking of following now is to uh, undergraduate education. That if I am, think, if I, I've been thinking about graduate school, and when you think about graduate school, you find yourself thinking about the whole university. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, uh, I'm planning to, uh, to tell some stories about undergrads. You've been listening to an interview with Leonard Casuto about his book, The Graduate School Mess, What Caused It and How We Can Fix It. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network, and I hope you have a great week.